Hey everyone, welcome back to the Full Circle Podcast. Today I'm joined with Shirley Waldron. Shirley is a partner at Delva Patman Redler in London who are leading party wall surveyors. And Shirley is also a qualified architect and a member of the RABA. So welcome Shirley. Thank you, James. <laughs> How are you doing today? You good? Yeah, not bad, not bad. All things considered. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, so I'm going to get straight into it today. How did you sort of get started in the architecture industry? Well, I think it was um, something that I aspired to for a long time. I think um, thinking back, um, when I was about 12 or 13, it's something that I talked about with my parents and their friends. And it's just something that I focused on. Um, I used to like looking at buildings, thinking about interiors, that kind of thing. So that's really how it all started. Um, And I suppose the logical progression was to make my O-level choices based on that decision. And that's really what I did. Um, Mm. From a young age, I was focused on that and took all decisions to try and get me get me to where I wanted to be um that's really how it happened so it's literally a sort of from the get-go you knew you wanted to be an architect pretty much well I originally thought I wanted to do interiors but then um I spoke to some people and they said you know just aim a bit higher than that and go for architecture so really (laughs) uh there you go aiming for the top um I didn't know it at the time but um yeah, it was a good decision. Hmm. It's it's quite a weird one I've found recently with, um, say, with being a part one, I think you're always sort of focused on getting to your part two. And then when you're a part yeah. two, you always want to sort of get your part three. Do you ever find that, um, say, when you qualified that you've, it's like you've done all these te- check, uh, like checklists and you're sort of, did you, were you thinking sort of what's next now from here after you've got the sort of title after seven or eight years, however long it was to become an architect? Gosh, well, for me, um, I actually took quite a long time to get my part three. Uh, by the time I'd done my part two and was working in in practice, I have to say I was a little bit disillusioned, but I knuckled mm. down. And um, it actually took me 12 years from leaving university or leaving uh, Brighton, which is where I studied, to getting yeah. my part three. It took me 12 whole years. Um and I wouldn't recommend that to anyone, actually, leaving it that long. But what I found is that people were saying to me things like, yes, but are you a real architect? Have you actually done? And I and I kind of had to admit, no, I'm not a real architect. And that was, and I hated mm. that. I hated the fact that I'd done all that work and I still couldn't call myself a real architect, whatever that is. Um, so it just made me focus and it made me want to do it because I wanted to be able to tell those people who kind of dismissed me as not a real architect that actually, yeah, you know, Sonny, hmm. I was a real architect. Um, so Yeah, because it's, it's quite a weird one, isn't it? Because hmm. I'm just thinking now, like going straight into my part one, want to get my part two done. But then it's kind of like, where does it sort of, end after you've obtained that title sort of what's next in a way after that step because they only really say you know you get your architect title and the kind of world's oyster from that point isn't it I guess after you've got the title in a sense yeah for sure I mean if you're if you're actually part three qualified and can are registered as an architect and maybe a member of the RIBA as well then sure that opens doors for you 
definitely and all over the world to be honest um especially if you have a second language so yeah i suppose the, the only thing that is if you if you do stop at degree part one then you know what are the benefits of that i think there are many benefits to it and we've talked about this in our earlier conversations if you go on to do diploma yeah. then really the only logical route then once you're doing your diploma is that you then become an architect um, regardless of whether you want to yeah. do other things as well but part one I think you know it can take you in all sorts of different directions um, whether it's into media or mm. uh, other forms of design product design um, you know advertising you know you you have proved that you're creative and you can commit yourself to projects and design so I think that's there's a huge benefit in just doing the degree. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's so many open sort of areas and aspects. And I think that's sort of what's inspired this podcast in a sense is sort of really understanding and that architecture is not just an architect in a sense. Architecture covers so many different areas of industry, doesn't it? And I think especially if you are a part one, you get you get the chance to sort of open up and you don't have to do the direct path, do you, in a sense? No, except that, don't forget, architect is a protected title. So not yeah. you can't call yourself an architect unless, unless you are registered with the Architects Registration Board. Um, yeah. You know, people do call themselves architects of products, for example, or, or I don't know, engineering or something, other things which uh, actually have um, mm. don't spring to mind really. But to call yourself an architect you have to have walked the walk and it's a protected title for that reason. Um, and recently, you know, the yeah. RIBA or even the Architect Registration Board, they did actually haul someone over the coals for calling themselves an architect when they were not a qualified architect. You know, you just can't do it. They don't They don't take very lightly to that. But um, yeah, I've seen. yeah, I think that, you know, there's, when you look, when you look at life and you look at the world, you see that a lot there's a lot of visual things going on. Uh, a lot of um, mm. things rely on their visual impact and being able to draw people in yep. with visual messages um, is, is very important. And we do respond as human beings to those visual pointers. And being an architect is, I think, very mm. much a part of that. I was going to say, as I've sort of mentioned before that you work at um, Delver, Partman, Redler, could you give your sort of definition of what a party wall is? A party wall, yes. Yeah, so just to give a bit of background, the company that I work for, we specialise in uh, neighbourly matters, which are um, yeah. matters to do with property development as they relate to the neighbours. We cover Rights to Light, which is um, one of our core mm -hmm. businesses, and Party Walls is another part of our core business. We also do boundary dispute resolution. Um, so a party wall, just to go back to your original question, is um, the separating wall between the properties owned by two in different people. Uh, so in a terrace of housing, for example, the walls separating the houses are party yeah. walls. In a block of flats, these structures, the horizontal structures, the floors are the separating structures, and those are party structures. Yeah, so that's okay. but, yeah, but the party wall Thank act you. 
covers not only structures and walls yep. as, I, as I've just described, but also adjacent excavation. So digging foundations, digging basements, that's all covered by the Party Wall Act as well. I've also noticed that you previously worked at um, Scott Brownrigg and EPR Architects. That's How did right, you sort yeah. of find so these Scott... two experiences? Yes, yes. So Scott Brownrigg, they used to be Scott Brownrigg and Turner. And I worked in their Guildford head office, as it was then, and um, also in Filton near Bristol on the MOD site there, <clears throat> which was very, very interesting. I was on site. And EPR Architects, yes, they're very well known, very big company of architects now. Um, and yeah, I've got very good memories of working working with them too. Mm. And in fact, working with EPR was my was my last job in an architect's office. Oh no, actually no, it wasn't quite because I also worked uh, for the estates design office at Imperial College. So we mm. did. Um, some design work for the estates of, of the university, which um, that was very interesting. Very nice group of people I worked with there. Mm. Was Scott Brownrigg your part two, was it? Mm, um, is, that, is that where you went? No. Uh, okay, so yes, I suppose they were. Um, it's quite a long time ago now. It feels like a different <laughs> a lifetime. Um, yes, in fact, <laughs> I qualified at EPR. I was at EPR when I did my part three. So, um, so Scott Brownrigg, okay. I was part two architect there. Yeah. Mm. So Scott Brownrigg was, um, was quite interesting because, um, I came to Scott Brownrigg. I mean, CAD was a new thing in those days, if you can believe it. There was, there was mm. life before CAD. Um, and there were still drawing boards in the office very much. So, I mean, you know, the architects worked on drawing boards and I was part of a new yeah. team of, um, of CAD technicians who became who were architects um, and that was a very interesting aspect of my career because it was all very new and very innovative. As you've sort of transitioned into the sort of the party wall and the sort mm. of surveying side of the industry now do you notice the difference between the workflow and the culture of architecture practice compared to say where you're working now? Yeah so I mean architecture has really um transformed i would say uh, it's actually going back again to the traditional way of architecture where you know the architect is basically the conductor of the orchestra but um yeah there's a lot of design and build now i suppose that's what i'm trying to say where the architect now works for the contractor and that was unheard of um when i was training um it was very much you know the architect mm. was the person who who started and finished the whole project. Um, but now, yeah. of course, the architect's role is more in upfront design. The risk is, do you get what you thought you were going to get if you get rid of the architect halfway through the process? And I think a lot of people realize that the answer yeah. is no, you have to keep the architect, you have to keep the architect on board to get what you, what what you want yeah, it's 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 really interesting sort of how you were saying before about the servers and everything changing and then in, a, in essence the sort of whole industry shifting as well throughout that sort of that time frame and how yeah things are completely almost different to today and then obviously with the added addition of covid as well how much covid's 
influence on the world of work at the moment as well. Yeah, completely. Uh, you know, and the working from home, of course, that has meant that teams have been um, physically taken apart, but actually through the media that we have now with Zoom and Teams and the thing that we're using now, Zencaster, to record this, you know, these are yeah. all new technologies, which they're not new, but of course they are newly discovered. Um, and I think they're yeah. just amazing. And of course, you know, they will continue, I think, to transform the way that we've worked, that we work in the last 15 months away from the old traditional commuting into the office, the physical presence um, mm. is going to shift. It's going to have to because uh, everyone wants it. Everyone wants to be able to get that elusive, you know, it's been talked about for decades, the work-life balance. Now it actually seems to be yeah. achievable. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely a good a good sort of culture shift, isn't it, into that trusting mentality and the sort of working from home aspect as well. I've also seen a few mentions of, say, a three or four hour, no, three or four day work week as well. Um, yeah. We say working from home and then a dropping day in the office. I think stuff like that where it's a hybrid between the two would be quite useful in the current climate as well yeah i think it's the holy grail in a way you know it's what we all want we want that work-life balance you know we want to we want to work more efficiently by commuting less by Mm. enjoying our work environment more by being at home perhaps you know where um but a lot of people have missed the office. I mean, a lot of my, you know, some of my colleagues have yeah. missed it and they love going into the office and yeah, to go into the office, but not have to go in. Do you know what I mean? So you can have the option yeah. working from home half the week, working in the office the other half of the week. Um, I think it's perfect. It's really interesting. Um, sort of talking previously about your um, placements in architecture, let's say it's Scott Brown, Rigan EPR architects. Do you find that having that prior experience has helped you with your career sort of going forward, as say at Delver, mm. Patman, Redler? Yeah, definitely. It helps that I, I know I can read drawings. <laughs> I mean, that goes without saying, I suppose, yeah. but, um, you know, it's sometimes not that easy. And you even I look at a drawing now and I think, what, you know, what are they trying to communicate? I mean, at the end of the, end of the day, a drawing is about communication um, and a line is not just a line on a piece of paper, but it's information, you know, um, yeah. and I think um, you have to, you have to always keep that in mind, being able to visualize in three dimensions. Of course, that's what architects do all the time. It's a very important part of your, hmm. of your work that you can look at a two dimensional drawing and, and visualize in 3d um, but the other thing, of course, is that uh, I did do a stint three years as a building control officer, which was also a okay. complete eye opener for me. Yeah. After I left um, and before I before I started at DPR, Delva Patman Redler, um, I did three years as a Wandsworth building control officer. And that was also you know, a a very steep learning curve because, you know, having done drawings all my life to then actually see not, not on a big, you know, multi-million pound site, such as um, the MOD procurement center in Bristol, which is where I was on site, but, you know, the kind of muck and bullets, St. George's hospital, 
blocks of flats, everyone's rear extension, loft conversions, this kind of thing. You know, you're actually seeing it happen and it's also happening very quickly because people don't want to keep their roofs off for longer wow. than is absolutely necessary. So, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of learning there and it was a very good thing for me to do career-wise, but also, you know, my own personal development really just to to have that experience. So, yeah. Would you would you recommend that experience to say if someone's going through a sort of a changing careers or something to experience that first or say if they're thinking about moving practices or once to get a better understanding of the construction industry and building control would you recommend someone goes into that field for a little bit and test the waters out definitely i think it would be a very good thing for uh, somebody who's learning about building to do definitely about yeah. if you're learning about design if you're learning about construction working on a building site that's the other thing you know get out there work on a building site i mean what better way to learn about building sites than to work on one yeah because i think that's one thing that's maybe missing from the sort of university scene is because i remember when i left university and then we smashed out all these concepts and we would really understand how to put a concept together but taking that into a form of building and understanding how a building fits together. That's almost like a completely new area for me to personally learn in a sense. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's sort of what's lacking is how them things fit together at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think it used to be, people used to be uh, keen to work on building sites. You know, you'd say, oh, I spent the summer as a bricklayer or or something like that, Mm. you know. And so to give you that raw experience of working on a building site. So and it does, yeah. it frames your your narrative really of how a building is put together because you know, you've you've worked on a building site um, and it's not just about drawing pictures mm. of buildings. Not that, of course, you do need that. It's mm. a weird one, isn't it? Because the micro influences the macro and the macro influences the micro. So it's a sort of a double-edged yeah. sword in a sense, isn't it? You get one and it benefits the other all the time. Exactly. But, um, exactly. You can't yeah, I always have think one that's really interesting. Other. And and you see that that's in a way that's the thing about the architect is that they see the all of that. They see the macro, and they see the micro. Mm. Um, and you know, you start with your site plan. You start with your planning regulations for that local area, and you finish with the paint color yep. inside. You know, the bedroom. Um, so, and that's. In some ways, that's why architecture is so difficult, because you have to know everything yeah. about everything. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say, is if, if you, say, go to site and you're unsure and you try and sort of get in with everyone and not really know what you're talking about, then you can be deemed a sort of unsafe architect in a way, if you don't understand it yourself. Um, that's right. And it's a really... You've just got to be the maestro in a sort of sense, haven't you? That yeah, you know and what you're talking about. Exactly. And that's why generally you find that, you know, architects, um, lead architects have got quite a few grey hairs because, you know, <laughs> they're the other side of 50 and they've been around the block a few times. You know, you do need that experience. You need that yeah. knowledge. Um, and if you if you don't know something, you also need to be, wise enough to say i don't know and look it up or hand it over to an expert yeah it'd be a, i think you'd be crazy to even try to attempt 
anything like that such a great feat to learn everything <laughs> yeah and yeah especially with the world so constantly changing and shifting as well old materials become redundant and new materials come into the spotlight yeah there's so much change isn't there exactly exactly so i've also noted that you um worked on the crossrail in central london mm-hmm. um that you were the surveyor could you sort of give us an insight into what that role sort of entailed and yeah sort of how um, that all worked so- so Crossrail, um, the Crossrail Act was, I think, 2008. Um, and, of course, Crossrail is, among other things, a big, deep tunnel underneath London, through the West End, yeah. through, through, you know, a large proportion of highly built-up areas, highly commercial, very expensive residential areas. So working for Crossrail in that respect, we had to advise Crossrail on their obligations under the Party Wall Act and then to implement those. And I worked on Crossrail on and off between, let's say, for eight years, between 2010 and 2018. And it it was great. I mean, I learned a lot there as well. I learned a lot about engineering because tunneling through soil primarily clay at 50 meters depth underneath Mayfair is, you know, there's a lot of engineering calculations (laughs) that need to go on. Um, But a lot of it was unknown, of course, because it was so deep. It was only when you, you came up with um, access to shafts or the actual uh, stations themselves that, um, you know, people actually knew Mm. about Crossrail. And of course it did have an impact, you know, it had an impact on, the working life of lots of people in in London, um, but of course the technology of tunnel boring machines under big cities, or, or indeed anywhere, a tunnel boring mm. machine can save you a lot of angst. In fact, and I think, well, I hope that it will be used a lot in HS two. I know it is, um, and of course we got now oh, got yeah. the Tideway Tunnel. The Tideway Tunnel is the huge sewer that yep. runs underneath the Thames. I mean, who would have thought that that would even be possible? Um, you know, in the old days, you had to literally freeze the ground in order to be able to cut that deep without, of course, a risk of um, God. hurting people, injuring people. Um, but nowadays, we've got something called a tunnel boring machine, which is an extraordinary piece of equipment that means you can just basically tunnel through soil, and, um, you know, the sides don't cave in. You can put it anywhere. And underneath the Thames, of course, is the perfect way because you're not duck tunnelling underneath anyone there. Um, you're not affecting mm. any properties. Yeah. That, so, yeah, very good. That must be a massive thing, that. If it's mm. if you're coming underneath London and you're, you've got all the sort of urban landscape above you, mm. there must be a slight chance that someone's thinking, oh, my God, it might collapse in here or something. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it must have been a crazy experience to just even be in that far underneath London to be on site. Uh, it's just amazing. And but what you what you find out, James, is that, in fact, you are weaving in and out of all the other tunnels that are around about the same level. So, you know, the Jubilee line, the Northern line, the Piccadilly line, yeah. they all intersect. They all cross crisscross above and below Crossrail. You've got some fairly deep sewers as well, I think, um, although perhaps not quite that deep. 
yeah, there are a couple of other tunnels which are not actually part of the tube mm-hmm. network, also at that level, um, unbelievably. Um, yeah, so you're weaving in and out. And they've, they've done, of course, you know, it's been, uh, they've done BBC documentaries to death on the subject or um, <laughs> YouTube. It's all on YouTube. You can just watch it from beginning yeah. to end. And it's, uh, yeah, the engineering, of course, is extraordinary because how do you know where your tunnel is when it's 50 metres below ground? How do you know where it is? Um and the answer, of course, is through science right. and through these amazing things called automatic total stations. <clears throat> now, an automatic total station can tell you where you are to within millimetres above and below ground. They're, they're pretty amazing pieces of equipment. Um, and it's all about wow. shining light or lasers, in fact, onto prisms and feeding that information back to computers couldn't do it without computers i don't think just be tunneling in the dark i've no idea where you're going i think if there were yeah in the old days i think it was a bit like that yeah yeah did you ever sort of come across a redundant tunnel because i know there's a few in say new york where they've just dug a tunnel and left it for a train station or something did you ever find that in london yeah so so there are things like that there are sidings as well where you dig a tunnel and then that's you just lay the lay the um tracks and that's where the trains go to sleep at night that sort of thing um they did actually Mm. bury i think one of the tunnel boring machine heads just it basically dug itself into the ground and is is there embedded forevermore um there's that um Yeah, but all sorts of cross passages. There was a lot of temporary works, of course, as well, where um, you've got the northbound or the east-west and then the west-east tunnels and you've got to connect them Mm. up somehow. It's crazy. It's just all the stuff that you wouldn't think um, even has anything to do with architecture in a sense, but then you have to get someone to design the train station, don't you, after? (laughs) Yep, indeed, and that's where the architects do come in. Of course, also, below ground, you've got all of the tunnels which they want to be suited so that when you are on the Elizabeth Line, you know that that's where you are. Um, So below ground, the Elizabeth Line is all uniform and all, you know, the panelling and the finishes are all exactly the same. But then when you come above ground, that's when the architecture kicks in and you and, you know, the above ground architecture is completely different depending on the station that you're at. I was going to say as well, I was just wondering, do you think that prior to well, sort of after leaving university, do you think there's this sort of gap between um, university and starting in practice? There's sort of gap in knowledge where, you know, maybe there's a bit of a jump. Yeah. For sure. And in as we t- talked about earlier, you know, in the old days, mm. you'd go away and get a job on a building site and that would go some way to closing your that gap between learning, knowledge and, oh, sorry, learning as, di- as kind of a different thing from experience. And of course, the two together then give you knowledge and expertise, I suppose, in the end, if you uh, if you stick at it. But yeah, I think there is a gap. And I think it's perhaps about people not wanting to go out and get their hands dirty a lot of the time. You know, um, I think yeah. it's very important that people should just 
get involved, get stuck in. Sorry, the the grand tour, wasn't it? The where they'd go and travel and sketch all the details and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I don't think they do that anymore, though. Yeah. Sometimes they'd bring back actual pieces of buildings, which nobody's (laughs) encouraging that these days. Um, But certainly to sketch, that is free. If you sketch the you sketch the um, Colosseum hmm. at Rome there's nobody stopping you from doing that so then in regards to the gap hmm. how do you think it could be sort of tackled just sort of get your hands dirty and crack on sort of thing or uh, so I don't think there's there's any kind of government initiative which can close hmm. that gap it's down to the individual students themselves what do they want from architecture how can they best develop their creative skills? Um, so that's, I think that that's what it's all about, about wanting to get involved. The, the other thing is that, um, and I'm not suggesting that people necessarily rush off and do this now, but there are a few charities who are doing house building in parts of the world where you wouldn't normally um, necessarily get to work as a professional in this yep. country. Um, but the charities are doing that. Um, I've heard of that. I've heard of a few cases of that. Um, And that would give you not just experience of architecture, not so much, but certainly building, Mm. vernacular, how people use buildings. You know, it's very, very important um, fitting the client's brief. That's that's what architects refer to it as. But it's basically, you know, you're always, you should always be designing for the end user the person who's going to be using yeah. your building, your school, um, accommodation. Wherever. I think that is a really sort of interesting point on the sort of humanitarian architecture aspect of it. Because I think that if a lot of people did that, you know, you'd have yeah. a lot more houses built in sort of other countries and you'd get a lot of on-site knowledge sort of work into completely yeah. newer conditions instead of just sort of in the UK, for example. Mm -hmm. Um. I mean you know we build we build buildings here a lot of it is determined by our weather Um, you know you have to meet building regulations these these are minimum standards that you have to meet and of course you have to meet them you know you have to be prepared to design to meet minimum standards Mm. Um, and we have of course the, the, the issue now which is of climate devastation or global devastation through climate change um and and you know tracing that back to the use of or the burning of fossil fuels and and oil um over the last few decades Mm. and you know um, as architects we have to recognize um that global issue and and respond accordingly. So people talk about embodied carbon. Oh yeah. And that's a new phrase, which you probably know what that is. It's basically no new buildings. <laughs> Use the building you already have. It's like, you know, what is the most eco-friendly clothing that you can buy? It's the clothing you already have. Yeah. Don't go buy new clothes. I have, I have seen a Sorry, lot of... Sorry, anyone in retail, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise. But, you know, 
if you've got building a building there with foundations, make use of those foundations, mm. make use of that structure that's already there. Um, that's the message that's coming through, I think, loud and clear. A lot of architects are embracing that. Yeah, I've seen a lot of um, initiatives come up recently, say, like, ACAN is quite a big one. Um, they're doing a series on, I think it's the circular economy, and that's breaking down all the sort of points of where we can mm. be more sustainable and whatnot, which is quite an interesting watch. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. it's definitely a really interesting, the whole embodied carbon I think that might actually bring out a new sort of form of architecture of repurposing and refitting these buildings to a new style. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yes. I mean, a problem with um, a lot of old buildings trying to repurpose them is that we have greater demand in terms of heating, ventilating, the servicing of buildings. Mm. And quite often there is not the space between floor to ceiling heights. I mean, I'm being very prosaic here now. So yeah. something something has to be um, done to rediscover how we can be more creative of those spaces. I mean, you know, we'll come up with it. We mm. are notoriously great at being um, the mothers of invention when there is a need for it. Yeah. We can design, we can invent and create ourselves out of the mess that we've created ourselves <laughs> into i suppose um and there are you know greater minds than mine working on just that right now so i've got great confidence that um, be all, it'll all be okay eventually i hope i hope that we will yeah that that's maybe not in my lifetime but hopefully in my daughter's lifetime mm. yeah <laughs> mm. so then Going back to sort of um, the whole education aspect, where do you think you learned the most, um, whether it be in architect's practice or building control or even sort of, do you see yourself still learning now? Is that, where do you think you've learned the most from your past experiences? Yes, well, um, you know, the phrase every day is a school day is still applies to me. Um, yeah. Um, and I think that's quite healthy. You know, we're supposed to do as architects, we're supposed to do CPD, (laughs) continuing professional development, but even without having to, you know, fill in your, your logbook Mm. or fill it in online, actually, um, to keep inquiring, you know, an inquiring mind is, is a good thing with architecture and with building there are so many different aspects to construction, to property development, yep. not just architecture. Um, there, of course, you know, the legal world, which I inhabit now more than I used to, hmm. um, is incredibly interesting. Um, I would say that I learnt, you know, of course, I learnt a lot in the firms that I worked in. Yeah. Um, and you've mentioned just a, a two there. Um after that, I think definitely building control, I learned a huge amount there, but I'm still learning, mm. you know, I'm still learning about what people want, what developers want from their land, what can they have, what can they do with their land, mm. um, that's very important, how can I help them to to do what they want to do with their land, um, and equally, how can I 
keep them out of trouble by not upsetting their neighbours when they do what they want to do. Um, I was just going to say about um, when the when I started my part one, I was opened up to this sort of new world and um, we did a lot of stuff in planning and in Greenbelt and all that sort of side of it. And it is really interesting to actually understand what you mm. can build and what you can't build and where you can build it and why you can build it in a sense. And then applying all of those constraints to the mm. sort of end user in a sense. And it just sort of informs the architecture, doesn't it? So then on a final mm. note, if you were a graduate or if you knew a graduate mm. coming out of university now, what is one tip that you could give them for, say, securing a job or moving forward in their career of architecture? Well, I think it's very difficult at the moment because the, the, you know, the job market yeah. is in a bit of turmoil because of COVID. So people who've asked me the same question, I've said, just take any job, hmm. get any job you can. And then um, from that position where you're at least earning money, maybe covering your, your rent and your, your, um, your expenses, yep. then look for something that you actually want. So, you know, there's need to have and then there's nice to have of course and the job of your dreams is very nice to have but some people just need a job mm. um and i would never say hold out for the job of your dreams and let yeah a job that will actually keep you keep you at you know let it go by no i don't think that's that's a good answer that's not the right advice to give anyone but um you know when you when you've got a job um, that's keeping your head above water, by all means, look for your dream job hmm. um, and take, sometimes it's baby steps, you know, just take that job that's in the place where you want to work, take that job that's with the firm you want to work with or take that job that is, you know, in the department of the firm you want to work with hmm. um, and always keep looking, keep your keep your eyes open, look at architecture, look at buildings, um some... I suppose do your homework as well, <laughs> you know, research, research the companies that you want to work with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's some, that's some really sound advice that, um, I think that's definitely correct in what you're saying mm. there. You shouldn't wait for that dream job because, you know, you could give up on an amazing opportunity where you gain loads of experience and then that's only going to benefit you later down the line when you do apply for your dream job. So I think, yeah, I think that's really some sound advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad you glad you thought yeah. so. <laughs> and then yeah, I think I yeah. think on that note we'll uh, end the podcast here. So thank you very much for joining me, Shirley. You are it's very been welcome, a James. Pleasure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Likewise. So, uh, yeah. yeah. We'll end the podcast there. Yeah.